0: Well, today we come to the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, and uh, we're going to begin this morning by reading our text. So if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. I consider this one of the more difficult parables that we're going to look at, and maybe you'll see. Why I might think that as we kind of begin to look at it this morning, Matthew 13, starting in verse 31, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Well, we've been studying Matthew 13 and uh, the kingdom of God. These parables are about the kingdom. And uh, this is what the Old Testament saints were looking forward to, the kingdom of God. And this kingdom involves the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, which were then picked up on by the prophets and uh, expanded upon. These promises, kind of broadly speaking, involve the, the coming of the seed of the woman, the Messiah, the anointed one, who would reign over the whole earth from the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants. And this reign was going to be a blessing to the nations, just as God had promised Abraham. And you could kind of turn back, if you want, to the book of Genesis. We're going to look at a little bit of verses in the Old Testament here again this morning. But this reign is what was promised to be a blessing to the nations in Genesis chapter two, in Genesis chapter 12 and verse three, God says to Abraham there at the end, he says, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then go ahead and turn over to Genesis chapter 22 and look at verse 16. The Lord is speaking there, Genesis twenty-two sixteen, and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies." And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And this is what we know, call it the the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant, the Abrahamic covenant promised land to Abraham and his descendants. It promised the seed, the offspring of the woman. It promised that that through the seed... There would be blessing. And so there's, there's the land promises, seed promises, and blessing promises to all the nations in the Abrahamic covenant. And through Abraham's offspring, through his seed, there would be a multitude of people, and they would possess the land. And they would possess the land that God had promised, and And through the seed, specifically through the seed, blessing would come to all the nations of the earth. And so through Abraham and specifically through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Look back at Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 4. Here the Lord says, quote, "'Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations.'" And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so part of God's covenant with Abraham was that God would give Abraham and his offspring after him the land, all the land of Canaan. And also God would be Abraham's God and he would be God of his descendants. And notice that word there, everlasting. This is an everlasting covenant, and it's an everlasting possession. And from this, Jesus draws out the fact that there would be a resurrection. This promise to Abraham, to you, and to your offspring after you, Jesus kind of takes this and and recognizes that there's going to be a future resurrection. And and I want you to just kind of bear with me as we look at some of these things. I want you to go to Matthew 22, and look at verse 31. Now, there's a lot we could say about this passage, this section. We'll, we'll come back to it when we get to, Gen- or to Matthew 22. But in, in verse 31, Jesus is speaking to the Sadducees. Of course, they don't believe that there's going to be a, a, a resurrection in the future. And so he says in verse 31... As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, the way that I understand this, what Jesus is doing here and Jesus' argument here is, is that this is based off what God tells Moses at the burning bush, Exodus 3 6, I'll just read it for you. God says to, to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God again. That's Exodus 3 and verse 6. And this is what Jesus is quoting in Matthew 22. And the idea is, is that, that I am the God that made these promises to Abraham. And so Abraham is going to have these promises fulfilled, and not just his descendants, but this is a promise to Abraham himself. And so if God is God of Abraham, then there must be a resurrection. I hope you can kind of follow that, that logic there, that if, if he is the God of Abraham, if he's the God who made these promises to you, Abraham, and to your offspring after you, then it's going to be that these promises are going to be applicable to Abraham. Abraham's going to be the beneficiary of these promises. And the author of Hebrews does a very similar thing. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll start reading in Hebrews 11, verse 8. It says there, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that, was, that, he, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise." For he was looking to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Jump down to verse 13. It says there, there all these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better, that is, a heavenly one, a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, this heavenly country, this the city that Abraham and his heirs were looking forward to—it's not—it's not that it's a, a country in heaven. The idea here is that this is a, a spiritual country, one that has a, a quality of God's dwelling, the quality of, of kind of a, a place that's heavenly, just like God's place is heavenly. And what I'm what I'm trying to lay out here is that God made promises to the Old Testament saints to Israel that He would be their God that he would give them the land, that he would bless them and the nations through them, and that they would rule over the land and over the nations. And this becomes even more clear in the Davidic covenant. I'll just read to you First Chronicles chapter 17. God says to David, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom." And he shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. And so David's son, the Messiah, is going to reign forever over the kingdom. And all of what God promised would be accomplished then through David's son. And this eternal kingdom that we're speaking about has not been established yet. These promises to Abraham and David and all Israel have not yet been fulfilled, and they won't be fulfilled until Jesus, the king, returns. You see, you can't have the kingdom without the king. And so we await the return of the Lord Jesus, and and, and he's going to return to the earth. And when he comes, he's going to conquer the kingdoms of the earth, and he's going to establish his kingdom. And at that time, he's going to resurrect the Old Testament saints, and those of us who, who had died or who have been raptured are also going to have been resurrected at that time, And we are all going to reign with Christ for a thousand years. And then after that, there's going to be a brief final battle against Satan after that thousand years, and we will reign with Christ forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And this is what the Old Testament saints were looking forward to when they desired a heavenly country or a city that has foundations, whose builder and designer is God. Again, Hebrews 11 verse 10. Now, this is also what the apostles were still waiting for in Acts chapter 1. And so I want you to turn with me over to Acts. Look at chapter 1. We'll start reading in verse 3. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 3, it's, it's Jesus there. He presented himself alive to them. So Jesus presented himself alive to the apostles after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so the disciples had 40 days with the resurrected Lord and Jesus was teaching them, speaking to them about the kingdom of God during that 40 days. And while he was staying with them, verse 4, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the disciples, after 40 days with the Lord, they're still anticipating the restoration of Israel. And so they asked the Lord, are you going to restore Israel at this time? And he doesn't correct them. They they were looking for the Lord to restore the kingdom. He doesn't correct them. He just says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. What your job is to do is to be witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit who's going to come upon you. And then continuing in verse 9, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so the Lord is going to return on the clouds just as the apostles saw him ascend into heaven. So he's going to return. And we are currently waiting for this return, just as the angel said. And this return is actually going to happen in two phases. Okay, First of all, Jesus is going to return with those Christians who have already died. So the Christians who have already passed away, Jesus is going to return. And those who are alive at that time when Jesus returns are going to meet the Lord in the air. This is what we call the rapture. And so there's going to be the, the the saints who have passed away and those who are alive on the earth at that time. Jesus is going to come and he's going to, he's going to meet the saints in the air in the rapture. And when we meet the Lord in the air, we will be resurrected. We're going to be given in that moment new physical bodies, just like the resurrected body that Jesus has now. Now, on the earth, at at what I believe is about the same time, the the seven-year tribulation period is going to begin. And during that time, God is going to save Israel during those seven years. And we're going to be delivered from that time through the rapture. And we're going to dwell with the Lord in heaven during that time while he pours his wrath on the earth. Now during that tribulation time, many are going to die, but the remnant of Israel are going to be saved. And then at the end of that seven year tribulation period, Christ is going to return with his holy angels and we're going to return with him and he's going to return on the clouds of heaven. And this time he returns to the earth. And so in the rapture, he met us in the air. Now in this return, he returns to the earth. And when he returns to the earth, he's going to judge the world that's alive at that time. And that's what we spoke about last week when we looked at the parable of the weeds in the field. And so when the Lord returns, he's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to judge the world. And when that judgment is complete, the, the Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected to reign with Christ for that 1,000-year period that's spoken about in Revelation chapter 20, and then we will reign with Christ forever. But until that return of Christ, our mission is to be witnesses for Jesus Christ and to preach the gospel to all nations. Our mission is to sow the Word of God. And the parables teach us about what's going to happen in this time between the two comings of Christ. Now, this gap between the two comings of Christ, his first coming, of course, to suffer, his second coming, to, to conquer, these, these, this gap, this time period, this time that we're in right now, wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. It wasn't clearly revealed that there would be two comings of the Messiah. And that's why our section, when it talks about the parables, talks about them as A mystery. This is something that is now being revealed that wasn't revealed before in the Old Testament. So the kingdom is not going to come with the first coming of Christ, but now it's going to come with the second coming. And that mystery. About the kingdom, this kingdom program includes this, that the kingdom program is still going to advance in this time. And through the gospel message, people can join the kingdom of heaven. People can become sons of the kingdom, heirs of the kingdom. They can become citizens of the kingdom. And so us as citizens of the kingdom, as saved people, we are awaiting the return of Christ to establish this kingdom. And so although the, fu- the although the kingdom is future, there's a sense in which it's pre- it's a present reality. It's present in the sense that people can join this kingdom now by faith. They can join this kingdom by being saved. And so we can first seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness now by living as Jesus commanded us, but our prayer is still your kingdom come. In other words, the kingdom is still future, and, and and the reason that we're we're going through this again is because, um, it's because, uh, you know, I, I, for, for one thing, it's because I think that we just need to hear these things over and over before they kind of click in our mind, um, but we're also going through it now because the parables in Matthew 13 speak about this kingdom program. And when we don't know the Old Testament expectation and we don't know the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, and through the prophets, then we don't recognize all that's behind this one little word, the kingdom of heaven. And so we need to kind of recognize from Scripture all that's behind that word. Now we've looked at two parables so far in Matthew 13, two parables of the kingdom, and all of these are parables of the kingdom. In the parable of the soils, we saw that, that there's going to be four responses to the gospel message, to this message of the kingdom of how you can become a citizen of the kingdom. And so we saw that the disciples are going to preach the gospel through this age. And three of the, the responses that we saw were were unfruitful responses. We saw that the devil would come and, and snatch the word away from some people. We saw that others would fall away when persecution arose on account of the word and they wouldn't stand and they wouldn't make it through and they would fall away. And we saw that a third group would be distracted with the cares of the world and they would prove unfruitful and prove to not be true believers. And so the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to resist the message so that many are not going to bear fruit. Many are not going to be truly saved in this age. But the fourth response showed that some people would understand and that some people would believe the word and be saved. And they would indeed bear fruit. And that fruitfulness pointed to a supernatural work of God in their lives, which we call regeneration or being born again or being made a new creature in Christ. And so in the midst of the discouragement, in the midst of the rejection, there's some encouragement that God is going to work and save people in this age. But in the second parable that we looked at, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, that parable taught that there would be sons of the evil one and sons of the kingdom together in the world until the end of the age when Christ returned. And so in both of these parables, we see the opposition of Satan. And we've already kind of seen the opposition of Satan in Matthew chapter 11 and 12 where Jesus was rejected. And so Jesus, at this point in his ministry, he has his 12 disciples, whom he called apostles, and maybe he has up to, to 70 other disciples. But the, the question comes, what's going to become of the kingdom in this age? The, the question I think that, that our parable is going to start to address is, is there going to be any success? Is the devil gonna be able to hinder the kingdom program? Is the devil gonna, gonna conquer? Is, is anything gonna happen, Lord, during this time? And our parable begins to answer those questions. This kingdom, which is one day to fill the whole earth and conquer every earthly power and rule over the nations with a rod of iron, it's, it's beginning in a significantly diminished way. And the disciples would have rightly questioned whether what Jesus was introducing here could have had anything to do with the kingdom that's promised in the Old Testament. And so these parables teach that although the kingdom program starts small, and really almost insignificantly, the final results are going to be substantial. Now, these parables are, are what we call parable twins, and they go together. They they look very similar, and they, they teach pretty much the same thing. And we're going to look at another set of parable twins next week when we study the parable of the treasure in the field and the parable of the merchant seeking pearls. But today, here's how we're going to look at our parable. We're going to kind of look at it under three headings. First of all, we're going to look at what we're gonna call the parables themselves. And so we're just gonna look at the parables. We're gonna, we're gonna see what Jesus is saying here and kinda of explain how this leaven and mustard seed would have worked. We're gonna kinda of keep it on the natural level and just look at the story, just look at the similitude that Jesus gives. And then secondly, we're gonna look at the, the parables teaching and we're gonna go through the same verses again and we're gonna to try to draw out of that story what the main teaching that our Lord is giving us there. And then we're going to see the parables told, and Matthew tells us there that these parables, that this telling of parables fulfills what was spoken of by Asaph in Psalm 78. And so we're going to look at the parables told by Asaph and Jesus, and we're going to see what that's all about in verses 34 and 35. Now, this was meant to be an encouragement to the disciples, and and I'm, I trust and hope that it's going to be an encouragement to us as well. You see, the principle applies as much today as it did then, that God's will and God's work is ultimately going to be accomplished despite how small things may look now. And so that's really the encouragement that's in here for us. Despite the, the insignificance or the seeming insignificance, God is going to accomplish His purposes in this age. And so let's begin by looking at the parables themselves, and we're just going to try to understand their, their natural meaning. We're not going to jump to the spiritual meaning yet. We just want to look on the natural level. We want to understand the story and its main points so that we can understand the main point on the spiritual level. And so number one, look at the parables themselves. And they're very, really quite simple, at least on the natural level. These are very simple little similitudes that Jesus gives here. Verse 31, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And so the kingdom is going to somehow be like this story or like this illustration. It's not merely like a mustard seed, but it's it's like a mustard seed that's sown in the field and that grew and that became a tree, and the whole the whole story represents the kingdom somehow. And so the kingdom is somehow in some way going to be like this whole story. Now, a grain of mustard was uh, a grain of mustard seed was proverbial for its small size. They were less than a millimeter in diameter. It took 700, over 700 seeds to weigh one gram. And technically, there's, there's smaller seeds in the world, but these are the smallest seeds that an Israelite would sow in their field. These are the smallest seeds that they had. They're the smallest of all domestically cultivated seeds that were known at the time. And so when Jesus says in this context that they're the smallest of all seeds, The audience would have recognized it not as a scientific statement about the size of all seeds in the world, but as a a generally true statement. The mustard seed was the smallest of all seeds, again, that were used at the time. Now we have to kind of cover that because some people use this verse to to try to discredit Scripture. But when we're looking at Scripture and, and methods of speech, we have to allow for just common modes of speaking. If the mustard seed was proverbial for its small size, which it was, then Jesus can can use it in that way, and, and we really would would all use it in that way. You know, we might and we do this from time to time ourselves, we talk about the beautiful sunrise. But in reality we know that the sun actually stays still and that the earth rotates. But we all speak according to our cultural norms, and that's what it seems that, that Jesus is doing here. He's not making a scientific point about the size of all seeds. He's just simply pointing out that the mustard seed was an extremely small seed. Now, when we think of mustard, we probably think of the yellow fields and, and plants that maybe we drive by and, in the prairies or even as well in our area as well. You know, those mustard plants are about maybe 12 to 18 inches, kind of yellow fields. But that's not the kind of mustard that was planted in Israel. This would have most likely been a, a plant that's called black mustard, although some say there's a plant called white mustard that's, that's very similar. But black mustard was was the most common, and it was used as a spice. And it was used for oil, and, and most people apparently would have one of these black mustard plants or trees in their garden. And typically one of these was all that you would need in your garden. And so this tiny seed, this one millimeter seed grew incredibly fast so that in one year, in that first year that you planted it, it could go from this one millimeter seed to a plant about eight to up to 15 feet tall. And so in one growing season, boom, this thing just springs right up. Jesus said, when it's full grown, it's larger than the garden plants. And so the little seed went from the smallest thing to the largest. Now, I'm not exactly sure what the, the average Israel, Israelite grew in their garden. And I kind of did some research on it. And they, they grew some, some cumin and some, some spices and some dill and stuff. I don't understand um, I, I tried to look up, I did a Bible search for potato, I didn't see it in there, you know, I, I'm not, but I, but there's probably things that they they grew that that we don't know, but this was the largest of the garden plants. You know, Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. And so they would have had that in their garden at the time. But whatever they had in their garden, I think it'd be somewhat similar to our garden where a, a A plant that was 8 to 15 feet tall would definitely be the largest of the plants in the garden. And a full-grown mustard tree, although it's not maybe technically a tree, but a full-grown mustard tree would be large enough for the birds to nest in it. And so I think we could summarize this first parable like this. The kingdom is like the smallest seed which is grown, which will grow to become the largest plant in the garden so that the birds can nest in its branches. And so something very small, proverbially small, becomes quite large. And, And again, I think it's pretty straightforward. Well, look at verse 33 then. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures the flour till all was leavened. Now leaven was a, a piece of fermenting dough, much like what we would probably think of in sourdough when we have a, a sourdough starter. And so each day, uh, a woman who made bread would take a piece of dough and set it aside for the following day's leaven into the next bread, and it would kind of continue like that day after day. Most people baked bread on a daily basis. Like yeast, leaven was the the thing that caused the bread to rise, just like sourdough does as well, making it kind of a nicer, fluffier uh, bread. And once a year in Israel, all the leaven would be discarded during the Passover when Israel ate unleavened bread and they would clean their house of all the leaven and they would then have to start fresh after Passover. With a new leaven, somehow uh, allowing the bread to to ferment, kind of like starting a, a brand new sourdough starter or whatever. But all year long, except for Passover, Israel ate leavened bread, and so this was kind of a daily occurrence in Israel. And the woman in the parable hid her leaven in three measures of flour, which is quite a big batch of 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 bread, probably. 50 liters of bread or enough food for 100 to 150 people. And she put the leaven in. She kneaded the bread until the whole batch was leavened. Now, we don't know much about the leaven she used but or how much leaven she used, but, but it was enough to make the entire batch into leavened bread. And it spread through the whole amount. And so, again, to summarize what we see here then, a woman put leaven in three measures of flour and a process started that affected the entire batch. And so that's the parables themselves. Let's go number two, and let's start to think about the teaching of these parables, the parables teaching. And as we move into the interpretation, like all parables, we need to be careful. And we we always really need to be careful interpreting Scripture. But I think we need to even be more so when it comes to parables, especially Parables that Jesus doesn't interpret for us. And and here, really the only clues that we have as to the meaning of this parable are, are the surrounding parables. Now, some interpreters would even caution us so far as to never teach doctrine from a parable that isn't explicitly taught in other places. And I think that's good advice. We need to be very careful that we don't kind of put our own meaning into these parables. And I think these parables, this these two in particular, are especially prone to allegorical interpretation. You know, for example, Jerome said that the woman is the church. And I don't know what he kind of took the rest of the, the thing to be, but Jerome taught that the woman was the church. You know, others have, have kind of taught on the parable of the leaven that, that the three measures represented the three branches of the human race, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Or others said it's the Jews, the Greeks, and the Samaritans. Or others said that this refers to the heart and the soul and the mind, and the Word of God has to kind of leaven through the whole person. And you can tell just as we kind of start to do that, you can see what allegorical interpretation, if we try to interpret each little thing in this parable, it's going to lead us in all kinds of different directions. Some have taught from this parable that the leaven is bad. Because in some verses of Scripture, leaven is a negative thing, and it's used in a negative sense, but there's also verses where leaven is good in Scripture. And so what are we to do with those? What do we do with these parables? Classical dispensational interpretation of these parables um, taught that both the birds and the leaven were negative symbols, and, and of course... In the previous parables that we saw, Satan was represented by the birds who came and ate the seed. And so they argued that from these verses that, that the evil influence of Satan would continue until Christ returned. On the other side of the spectrum, post-millennial interpreters, this is one of their favorite verses, and they see this exactly opposite, and they use these verses to teach that the kingdom influence is going to spread like yeast, and every facet of society is going to be impacted by the gospel, and then Christ is going to come. Now obviously, those two views are mutually exclusive, and so they both can't be right. So a couple of things here as we think about how do we get the teaching out of these parables. You know, we, we need to be careful that our view of this parable doesn't undo everything that we already learned in this context. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, for example, the, the, post-millennial view exalts this parable really above all the parables in this context so that when Christ returns, the world is so Christianized that there's virtually no sons of the evil one to judge when Christ returns. And so we need to be careful that we're not, we're not, we're not, we're, that we, we recognize that this parable is surround, these parables are surrounded by parables that teach about the evil influence in the world until Christ returns. Another thing to kind of recognize here is that our view of the kingdom is, is really going to greatly influence our interpretation of these verses. And I think that's the way that we need to do it. I, I don't think we can, we should, I think we need to be careful about trying to draw too much from these parables. Our view of the kingdom is, is really shouldn't come from this text. Our view of the kingdom needs to come from clearer passages of Scripture. I also think, number three, that we should be of allegorizing these parables. I don't think we should find, like we, like in all parables, we shouldn't find references for the birds and the branches and the leaven or the three measures of flower. This whole parable means something, not each individual part in the parable. And in both parables, if we take them together as parable twins... They both teach that something small or something insignificant eventually becomes quite significant. And the kingdom program is going to be like that. At first, it's going to be small, and the Old Testament didn't anticipate this. The Old Testament expected a, a dramatic coming of the Messiah that was going to instantly transform the whole world, r- r- you know, sm- smash out the other nations, and, and fill the whole earth. And so the Old Testament didn't anticipate a a insignificant beginning of the kingdom program. Now, when we think about it just in those terms, in, in something small becoming quite big, I think the smallness is easy to identify. Jesus and 12 apostles, 12 disciples maybe a few other apostles on the day of pentecost there's only 120 people praying after the the lord jesus rose from the dead there's so few people and i think that's the what what we see as the insignificant part we could think about it this way as well that the message that the disciples preached was a foolish message in the eyes of the greeks a crucified messiah was a stumbling block to the jews And so the question again for the disciples would be how is this this group or how is this message, how is this weakness, how is this insignificant band of people gonna gonna be the kingdom? It's just it doesn't it doesn't make sense if we understand the Old Testament. And and the answer is, according to these parables, is that it's gonna grow. That this small little group that that it's gonna it's gonna spread, it's gonna start small, but it's gonna spread. And I think the idea then is that people are going to be converted and they're going to bear fruit. And sons of the kingdom are going to arise and they're going to be ready for the return of Christ. That people are going to be genuinely saved. But again, as we kind of move much beyond that, we need to be careful again because what does it mean that the kingdom's going to grow or what does it mean that the leaven is going to leaven the whole loaf? Does it mean that the whole world's going to be saved? Does it mean that all the elect are going to be saved? Does it mean that everything, the whole world is going to be Christianized? Whatever that even means to be Christianized. Are there going to be more and more Christians through this age as we progress through history? And again, this is where we need to recognize that whatever our view of the kingdom, it's really going to come into our interpretation at this point. The good news is, and I think we can take it at least on this level, the good news is, whatever this means, God is going to accomplish it. Really, whether we believe it or not, whether we get it right or not, we can take comfort in the fact that God is going to accomplish His purposes and the mustard seed, whatever it represents, is going to grow and and become a tree and the leaven is going to reach everywhere. And so whatever this means, God is going to accomplish it. Whether our interpretation is right or not, and, and I think we can take a little bit of comfort in that. I think that these verses teach that God's kingdom program is gonna be, con- uh, gonna be achieved. And no matter our view on how it's gonna look, we can say that God will accomplish his purposes. Now, the way that I understand this is, th- is simply that the kingdom is gonna grow and many, many people are gonna be saved in this age, or, or many, many people are going to be saved throughout this age. And in the end, at the end of time when Christ returns, when the second coming happens, there is going to be a great multitude, which no one can count, that will be saved, and they will have been saved throughout this time. There's going to be a great multitude in the end who are going to enter the kingdom. Now, both Jesus and Paul, to kind of fit this in, and, and to fit this in with the parables around us... Jesus and Paul both tell us that things are, are going to get worse over time. And so I want you to turn with me to a few texts as we kind of think about, we're trying to think about what does it mean that, that this is going to spread, that this is going to grow. And I I, I want to kind of help us to recognize that we, we can't take this too far in, in what I would call the post-millennial sense of this. Look at Matthew 24 and verse 9. Matthew 24, we'll start in verse 9. The Lord's speaking here. And he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Now, I believe that, that these verses are, are speaking about the present time that we live in right now, at least in Matthew 24 here. Um, but Jesus is telling us here that the love of many is going to grow cold and lawlessness is going to be increased in the last days. And I think this agrees with Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let's go over there. 1 Timothy 4, starting in verse 1, Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in late, latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And then go over to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and look at that passage there. Second Timothy 3, starting in verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to, to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, But denying its power, avoid such people. And we see then just a little bit later on that Paul is going to expect us even to be persecuted in in this age. Not necessarily prosperous, but persecuted. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 12, just a few verses later. Indeed, he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving, And being deceived. And so, even though the kingdom begins insignificantly, and even though through this age there's going to be rejectors of the message, and there's going to be sons of the evil one, and even persecutors, the kingdom will come in the end, and it will be great. And in the end, God will conquer, and the kingdom will come. But these verses teach us, I think, this parable, these parables teach us that God's program in this age is going to be successful, even if that success means small pockets of faithful believers bearing fruit in the midst of rejection. And that knowledge would have been, I think, a huge encouragement to the disciples, it would have been incur- a huge encouragement to the twelve to know that, that even though there was, there was only twelve of them, and even though there were so few of them, God was going to work through them in the midst of the evil to accomplish His purposes, and some people would be saved, and they would bear fruit. And that really should encourage us as well, that in the, the midst of, of insignificance and difficulty, in the midst of trials, God will be glorified through our lives. You know, there's always been a principle in scripture that God uses the weak and insignificant for his glory, and we should take great comfort in that. He'll use a, a small, faithful church like ours to bring glory to his name. Now, we're not guaranteed, at least, at least not that, that we're gonna grow, at least we're not guaranteed that we're gonna grow in number. We might not, but we are promised that we will grow spiritually as we follow the Lord and learn his word. And ultimately, again, God's kingdom program will be accomplished. And if we are believers, we will bear fruit in this age. And so that's really the encouragement that we can draw, even if we can't get much more specific than that. Well, let's go then number three, and let's look at the parables told by Asaph and Jesus. And so go back to Matthew 13, look at verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, I consider this one of the harder fulfillment passages in Matthew. Matthew quotes from Asaph in Psalm 78, and this is one of the longer Psalms. We're not going to read the whole thing, but let's go and, and flip over to math, or, uh, to Psalm 78. Asaph begins with verse 2. He quotes from, this is the, uh, our verse 35 quotes from Asaph in Psalm 78, verse 2. And Asaph's parables are Asaph's dark sayings from of old. They're, they're not really parables in the way that Jesus is teaching parables. In Psalm 78, Asaph takes Israel's history and he explains it for the next generation. And, and he focuses on God's works and he focuses on the nation's rebellion against God through their whole history. And so look at verse, we can kind of get it from just the first few verses. Look at verse 1, Psalm 78, starting at verse 1. It's a maskil of Asaph. Verse 1, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And so Asaph's parables in this context involve showing the next generation of Israel God's work so that they won't repeat the sin and error of their fathers. But despite their rebellion and their, and their lack of faithfulness, God remained faithful. And God's faithfulness in the Psalm often resulted in judgment, but even in judgment, God never completely rejected His people. And that should sound familiar if we think about it because that's really what we've seen in Matthew as well. Israel is once again being rebellious and God's judgment has come upon that generation of Israel. And so the kingdom would not come in that generation. And the crowds, as we see in verse 34, the crowds are going to get nothing without a parable. But God's blessing is still going to come in the future, and he's not going to utterly forsake his people, even as he didn't utterly forsake his people in previous generations. God's going to accomplish his purposes. And so what Asaph spoke about was fulfilled again in Jesus' day, and fulfilled again through Jesus' ministry. And Psalm 78 ends with the coming of David to shepherd Israel. And so the ultimate David now had come, Jesus had come, and they, again, Israel rebelled against him, but he would come again and he would accomplish his purpose. He wouldn't utterly forsake Israel either. And so Matthew is pointing out, I believe that the best way to understand this is that Matthew is pointing out that everything happening with Jesus, his mighty works, and his rejection is just another page in Israel's history. Israel rebelled again, but God's plan is not done. God is faithful, and eventually in his time, he's going to bring all things together through his son, Jesus Christ, and he's going to accomplish all his purposes for the creation through this great Messiah. Jesus is going to reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and until He returns, our mission, our duty, our job is to participate in His great work by preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and as we do that, citizens of the kingdom, sons of the kingdom are going to be added to this coming kingdom in salvation. And so when he comes, when the Lord Jesus comes on the clouds of heaven, all who are truly saved are going to enter the kingdom to reign with Christ forever. But all who are not truly saved are going to be judged and sent to the lake of fire. And so if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you haven't repented of your sins and turned to him in faith, then you need to repent today because this Jesus is coming And really, He could come at any time. There's nothing that we're waiting for. Jesus could come at any time and take His people. And if we are truly saved, then we can again take comfort in knowing that that God will use us in this age, that we can participate in this great work that He's doing. And that ultimately, everything that God has promised is going to come to pass. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for your word. Uh, these are difficult texts for us, but uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that, that you work through insignificant people, that you accomplish your purposes through weakness. Father, we are very weak ourselves, but we just take delight in the fact that you can use us and that you promise that, that we will bear fruit, that we will bring glory to your name, that you will grow us to be a holy people to be ready for the return of Christ. We ask that you would continue that work in our lives and help us to be faithful to the mission that you've given us in this age. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.